Thanks, Matt. I see you, buddy. I see you. Okay. Sunday, July 17th, 2022. Thoughts of dog. The human has made quite the sandwich for lunch. But when I placed my chin on their knee and looked up at them softly, they only offered me a piece of lettuce. Nobody talked to me for the rest of the day. I know um, it's a little silly to start with something like that, but the Bible does say that we're a child of God and not an adult with God, so here we are. Um, Last week, Shell, she in her sermon challenged us to write a psalm for our life and uh, the current season of our life and the psalm that we're singing. And it's appropriate that Alex is here today because very early in my journey with my walk with God, Alex was my advisor at Adult and Teen Challenge, and he challenged me to do the same thing. He said, I want you to find a psalm in the Bible, and I want you to write it in your own words. And it really reignited this spirit inside of me for creation and for expression. And I read this in the first first service and got very uh, teary-eyed, and it affected my contacts for the entirety of the rest of the service. So I'm asking God to help me not be emotional this time. I'm Cody. And this is my song, my good news, if you will. I could tell you some stories you wouldn't believe. I have a fountain of hope to distill. There have been times in my life when times have been tough, when the outlook at best has been bleak. But if you give me a moment and lean in quite close, you can hear this heart that still beats. I am Adam, alone in the garden, trying to hide in plain sight, taking all that's wrong off limits but in bloom and dressing it up as right. And you are the God who brings darkness to light. I am Moses by divine humor and grace. The same river that should have taken my life became my hiding place. And you are the God who lights up my face. I am Joshua. I will slay nations and tear down walls and enter into promised lands, but still need to hear, be strong and courageous, and for you to hold my hand. And you are the God who defeats armies with worship bands. I am Peter, gifted with insight and faith, quick to make a promise, pull a sword, and switch sides. But when the wind blows and the waves crash, I'm pulled under by a rising tide. And you are the God who will forgive what I have denied. I am Thomas. It wasn't proof of life that I needed to see. It was scars so that I could know you could be wounded just like me. And you are the God who met me in my need. I am Mary, delivered from more demons than I care to say but I'll always be the first you find at your empty grave. And you are the God who calls me by my true name. I am Paul, a testimony of extremes. I've gone from death to life, so your church could look me in the eyes 
to see what redemption really means. And you are the God who will rewrite my legacy. I am Cody, and this is my song, my good news, if you will. I could tell you some stories you wouldn't believe. I have a fountain of hope to distill. There have been times in my life when times have been tough, when the outlook at best has been bleak. But if you give me a moment and lean in quite close, you can hear this heart that still beats. <clears throat> so, first service, I let them know that two weeks ago when Pastor Jeremy uh, invited me to preach today, I got very, very excited about it. I got very excited, and I invited a lot of people here to hear this, not knowing that God was going to ask me to preach on something very, very tough. Something that, to be honest, if I knew I was preaching to a room full of people that I looked up to and respected, I probably wouldn't have invited some of you, honestly. But through the first service, God really instilled me with some courage, and so y'all are about to get it. Uh, the only thing I'm battling now is this scratchy throat and dry mouth. And just a side note, if you ever want to know what God really wants to use in your life, check and find out what the devil attacks most often. Whatever the enemy is trying to take away from you is exactly the thing God is going to empower you to use the most. So, a little over two weeks ago, I wrote in my prayer journal, and let me encourage you, if you don't do this, do this for the very reason I'm about to describe. Because had I not written down what I wrote down, I would not be able to go back and see how clearly and how beautifully God answered a prayer in my life. On July 9th, I was going through some mental struggles and I could see myself entering into a cycle that I'd been in before that led to a very destructive place. And the, the foresight that God had given me in that moment was, you need to know something about cycles. And so I wrote here, word for word, I'll read it. Will you speak to me about cycles today? Now, God did not in that day speak to me about cycles, but knowing what I know about God, I know that I was not ready to hear about it in that day. Two days ago, however, I was watching a YouTube video, and as you all know, when you're watching YouTube videos, you get different types of ads. You'll get a five second ad you can't skip. You'll get a 15 second ad you can skip after a couple seconds. And every now and then, if you're watching the right video, you'll get a 48 minute long ad for a product or a book or a movie. And if you don't skip it, then you're going to sit there and endure the whole thing. And so about 47 minutes and 20 seconds into this video, I realized I'd been watching an ad for almost an hour. So <clears throat> this ad was the physical or the visual representation of a book written by a guy named Ray Dalio. And this book is about the rise and fall of empires and how, <clears throat> excuse me, no matter how far back into our history you go, the same cycle about the rise and fall, the rise and decline of empires has happened over and over and over again. Now, I love stuff like this. I love when somebody takes a very specific topic and zooms way out. I love how if you zoom out far enough, every country in our, on our globe is an island if you zoom out far enough. And if you keep going, our world is one planet amongst several planets in our solar system. And if you keep going, our solar system is one among many in our galaxy. 
And if you saw the photos that the James Webb Telescope sent back to us this week, you saw this deep space picture. And it's just a square. And in this square are a bunch of tiny little dots. And according to NASA, every tiny dot that you see in that picture is a galaxy. Now remember, a galaxy is made up of solar systems, and solar systems are made up of planets. And this picture that they sent us, they say, is that when you look at the sky, if you were to hold a grain of sand at arm's length, and you look up at it, this picture is what you would see in that grain of sand. And there are galaxies, thousands of galaxies within a grain of sand. When I think about that, I understand what David meant when he said, when I consider the heavens, the work of your hands, the stars and the moon, I ask myself, why do you think of me? Why does man mean anything to you when I can see billions of planets in the grain of sand? Anyway, the cycle that Ray Dalio describes, they all look the same. And the point the reason he's writing this book about the changing world order is because, if y'all haven't noticed, America is on the decline of this empirical cycle. We have reached the peak of our dominance, according to Ray Dalio, and we're now declining. And he, his instruction is basically not only how to survive this fall, but how to thrive in it and how to be prepared for it. So I'm watching it just because I'm, interesting, I'm interested. I love things like this. But something moves in my spirit as I'm watching this, and I understand that God's trying to show me something through it, and He's actually answering the prayer that I prayed on July 9th, teach me something about cycles. Because I see the correlation between the cycle of a rise and a fall of an empire and my relationship with idolatry. How the way a country will begin to experience prosperity, they'll be springboarded into success and peace because of decisions that they've made, and then they'll start to bet on that prosperity and peace. And the way they do that is they start printing money, but that's the beginning of their downfall. Because once you start printing money to stay afloat, you gotta print more money. And that's where the decline starts to happen. Same has happened with me in my own cycles of idolatry. Now, I'm up here today on this stage, and this is the only way that I feel above any of you I promise. I'm not up here today because I think I know any more about anything or I'm any better than anybody in this room. I'm not preaching to you. I'm preaching through me. Yeah. This is my experience that I'm conveying that I believe God wants me to communicate to you so that hopefully you see something in my story, in my life that you believe can help you. There are three statements that Ray Dalio makes that he's talking about the rise and the fall of an empire. But it's also been the exact same situation for my rise and fall in terms of relationship with idols. The first one is, to understand what's coming at you, you have to understand what came before you. The second one is, powers don't decline without a fight. And the final one is, the most important, a nation's greatest war is with itself. My greatest war is with myself. So today, if you will open your Bibles, 1 John chapter 5, verse 21. It's the very last verse 
in the book of 1 John, and the book of 1 John is one of the very last books in the Bible. As you're going there, if you are very quick to find places in your Bible, praise God, and if you are, just know that very quickly we will also be in the book of Exodus. So we are going to start at the end, and we are going to end at the beginning. Now that's a very common theme that has been showing itself very often in my life over the past, I don't know, year and a half. Ben, just the other day, said, I remember when you started reading the Old Testament, because when you started reading the Old Testament, I've not heard anything other than the Old Testament. So all I'll talk about is the Old Testament. And the reason is this. The New Testament, for me, has been instruction. The Old Testament has been explanation. God tells me what to do in the New Testament, and He tells me why to do it in the Old Testament. So every time I find this truth that applies to my life, I can go back and I can connect it with a story from somebody who experienced something that I've either gone through, am going through, or will go through in the Old Testament. And He shows me, this is why this is happening, or this is why this is going to happen, and this is why you need to do what I'm telling you way later, so that you can avoid this, or get through this, or learn from this. So I've got two different translations. I'm going to read the NIV, and I'm going to read the NLT. I think that should cover everybody in the room, except maybe Nanny. Do you have King James Version? Yeah? No? Okay. Okay. <clears throat> NIV says this, Little children, keep yourselves from idols. Is that confusing to anybody? Anybody in the room not know what God is trying to say when He says, keep yourselves from idols? Now, to do this, we have to kind of describe and explain a couple different terms. We have to decide what idolatry really is, and alongside that, we have to decide what worship is, because idolatry doesn't happen without worship. Now, the New Living Translation, I think, defines idolatry just about as well as we could do here today. It says, little children... Keep yourselves away from anything that might take God's place in your hearts. That's the goal of idolatry. That's the end result of having an idol in your life, is it's going to take God's place in your heart. So I'm going to give a few statements. I'm going to ask a few questions so that we can all come to the same understanding of what idolatry is and how it applies to our life. First of all, worship. Worship is something that I give. Worship is one of those unique, beautiful words that can be both a noun and a verb. When I hold it, worship is a noun. When I give it, worship is a verb. I will always give my worship. Idolatry is something that eventually only takes. In the beginning, I'm going to give my worship to an idol, but once it has me, once I'm in the cycle of idolatry, I'm going to stop giving and it's going to start taking. Idolatry will eventually always take. Worship requires only me. When I'm worshiping God, all He needs from me is my worship. Idolatry, similarly, will begin with me giving my worship, but eventually... It's going to require my resources. As soon as I commit myself to idolatry 
and I begin practicing idolatry, it's going to take everything I have. It's going to start with a little bit. It's going to be so, so small and so fractional that I won't even notice that it's taking from me. And before I know it, I'm going to be empty and I'm going to be broken. Worship is a result of intimacy with God. Idolatry is a result of the lack of intimacy with God. Worship benefits everyone. Idolatry benefits me. This morning I was on the phone with one of my buddies. And uh, for all of the people in the room who have Teen Challenge running through your veins, you know I mean my actual buddy. Uh, my buddy Curtis that either Jeff or Alex, I'm certain, assigned me to when I came into the program of Teen Challenge. He was my buddy in the program then, and he's my buddy to this day, and I know he's listening right now. But as we were talking through some of these points, he reminded me, he said, Cody, you need to tell them. Everybody's worshiping something because we were made to worship. God made us as creatures and as beings to worship Him, and so if we're not giving Him our worship, we're giving something our worship. So if you ever find yourself in a place where you do not feel like you're in a posture of worship towards God, know that you're in a posture of worship towards something. Don't take this to mean that you are no longer a child of God. If you are finding yourself in a place of idolatry or even in bondage to idolatry. Remember, the children of Israel who we're about to talk about in depth, they were God's chosen people. And the Old Testament is a constant story of their cycle of bondage to idolatry. Just because you feel like you have idols in your life does not mean you're not a child of God. So, how do we identify idols in our life? I've got a question for you that you can ask yourself. And this is a very important one because in my own life, when I take a very close, honest look at the things that have become idols for me, I recognize that they started as a gift from God. Everything that I've ever experienced idolatry with began as a blessing from heaven. Now, they can very easily go back to that. We can very easily correct and put them back in their proper place but we have to understand that the good gifts from God are the very ones that the enemy wants to turn into idols in our life because that makes them so difficult to recognize. So ask yourself, who owns it? The good things in your life, who owns them? A great biblical example of this is the story in 1 Samuel, and it's the birth of Samuel. Hannah is a mother, she's a childless mother, and her not having children is causing all kinds of issues in her life. She's really going through it because she's barren. And so she asked God, please give me a son. She said, as a matter of fact, if you'll give me a son, I promise I'll give him back to you. I promise if you bless me with a child, I'll care for it with the understanding that it never was mine in the first place. And she keeps that promise. And she gives him back to God. And he becomes one of the greatest prophets in the Old Testament. So ask yourself, and it takes a lot of sincere honesty to answer this question truthfully. Are there things in your life that if God asked you for them, if He said, I need you to give me that, could you do it? Could you do that with everything in your life? Because if anything you have to say no to, 
It's an idol. So I'm going to read through a few scenarios, and these aren't going to be fun. This is going to be the most unpleasant part of this sermon, but what I'm trying to do is get us all on the same page about why we're here. And just full transparency, most of these, I think all of them at one point or another in my life have been true, and that's why I was able to come up with these. If your job keeps you from serving and or building God's kingdom, your job is your idol. If you don't tithe, or if when you do, you do it begrudgingly, money is your idol. If you reach for anything on earth to provide you comfort, that thing is your idol. If it's a substance, if it's a person, if it's a place, if it's a TV show, if it's a mindset, if it's anything that isn't your creator, that thing is an idol. Here's the tough one. And I apologize to my beautiful fiance. If you would rather hit the snooze button than wake up and give your first fruits to God, comfort is your idol. My buddy Michael and I, we go to uh, Mark Luttrell Prison in Memphis, and we, it started with us going there to do ministry, and it very quickly became us going there to get ministered to, because these guys are so obedient, and they are so disciplined in the very first thing they do when their eyes open in the morning, the very first moments of awareness and consciousness that they have, they give to God every single day. Every day they give it to Him. I learned that from them because this is me. I would much rather trick myself into thinking that I, that extra 15 minutes is going to do something for me than I would wake up and give it to God. Comfort is my idol. If you get your identity from anywhere but God, pride is your idol. We all often think that pride always means ego or overconfidence, but insecurity is pride too. Pride just means you think more about yourself than you should, even if those thoughts are negative. If you walk around beating yourself up all the time, thinking that you're less than, thinking that you're not as good as other people, focusing on your insecurities, that's pride. Yeah. If you have something in your life that you think you need, job, money, relationship, but it doesn't provide you peace and you still keep it, yeah. it's an idol. If you choose time with anyone over time with God, this is a hard one. This is family. This is that loved one. This is your best friend. If you choose time with that person over choosing time with God, that person is an idol. If you feel personally attacked anyone, someone, anytime someone disagrees with you, I need to read that one again. If you feel personally attacked anytime someone disagrees with you, your ego is your idol. If you felt personally attacked by what I just said, your ego is your idol. Now, now that hopefully we're all on the same page and we all know that we need to be here and we all know that idolatry doesn't just mean that we have constructed a physical statue that we worship in our bedrooms every day. That's not the idolatry I'm talking about. 
I'm talking about allowing something in your life that takes God's place in your heart. It's much easier to slip into than we think it is. But God can't change anything. God can't fix anything. God can't heal anything that you're not willing to acknowledge. If you live in denial of it, you're going to stay living with it and in denial of it until you choose to own it and accept it and say, okay, God, it's real, and I believe that you need to do something about it. And he will every single time because God is faithful and because God is a jealous God, and he does not want anything in your life that's taking his place. All right. I want everybody to close your eyes. Everybody close your eyes right where you're at. I'm going to read two very brief passages. And I want you to just focus on the words. And remember, these two things are happening at the exact same time. These two passages are happening simultaneously. The Lord said to Moses, Tell the people of Israel to bring me their sacred offerings. Receive the contributions from all whose hearts are moved to offer them. So Aaron said, Take the gold rings from the ears of your wives and sons and daughters and bring them to me. All the people took their gold rings from their ears and brought them to Aaron. Aaron took the gold, melted it down, and molded it into the shape of a calf. You can open your eyes. Those two things are happening at the exact same time. One of them is happening at the top of the mountain, where God has given Moses instruction on how to build the tabernacle, and the other is happening at the base of the mountain, while Aaron is supposed to be babysitting everybody else. So the title of today's sermon is, Who Gets Your Gold? Who Gets Your Gold? Moses is up there on top of the mountain because he has just led the children of Israel out of bondage from Egypt. Now, just a couple key points about Moses. The book of Exodus, in the very beginning, when it's describing Moses as a person, says that he was a very beautiful child. It goes to great lengths to talk about how attractive of a child that Moses was. Now, does anybody here know who wrote the book of Exodus? Moses did, right? And that's kind of funny. I know it is kind of funny, but there is a key point in that, that Moses did not let the world define who he was. Because not only was Moses a beautiful child, Moses was also a murderer, right? Moses killed somebody in the desert. Moses was trying to free a Hebrew from the Egyptians, and God's plan was certainly to have Moses free some Hebrews from some Egyptians, but not the way Moses tried to do it, not the way Moses did it. And if the world wrote Moses' story, the first thing and the loudest thing we would have heard about Moses was not that he was a beautiful child. Not that the very river that was supposed to take his life was the very thing that saved him. That's what we heard first. What we would have written first as humans with our human nature was the biggest, baddest, boldest thing we could think of. Moses killed a dude. We'd have started there. And that would have been the very first depiction of this man. And we would have had to undo. We would have spent a whole book of Exodus trying to undo the faults of Moses. 
when that was never the main thing. That was a fault in his character that wasn't who he was. So Moses knew better. He said, I was a beautiful baby, y'all. Beautiful. <laughs> so he delivers, he helps deliver. God uses Moses <clears throat> to deliver the children of Israel from Exodus, from, from Egypt. And there's some very important components to the way God does that. Because I know y'all have heard this before, but it, it's worth repeating. God wasn't just trying to get the children of Israel out of Egypt. God needed to get Egypt out of the children of Israel. Because he had, they had spent over 400 years living in this society. They spent 400, that's generation after generation. And y'all know how hard it is to break the thing, well, my dad said, because his dad said, because his dad said, and I do it because my mom does it this way, and she did it because her... They, they, that's what they had been living with for generation after generation. And God was trying to tell them, you're not an Egyptian. That's been bondage. They're doing it wrong. I don't care how your dad did it. I'm going to show you a new way. But in order to do that, he had to go pretty strong at it. And so the Egyptians had a whole laundry list of gods that they worshipped. Not only were they gods like Osiris and Ra and and all these others, but they also worship things like cattle and frogs and the river Nile. And so every plague that God sent upon the Egyptians was a direct attack against the gods that they worshipped. So the process, and you're going to see this in your life, you're going to see, mark my words, you're going to see this in your life. God's not just going to bring you out of bondage. He's going to defeat the bondage. God did not just bring them out of Egypt. With every single one of them, he either gave them more of the thing they worship than they can handle, like the frogs. They worship frogs, so what did God do? Give them so many they couldn't move. He said, oh, you like frogs. You think frogs are cool. Well, let me give you so many frogs that you can't even get in your bedroom. That's been my story. Things that I love so much, God just gave me so much of it, it made me sick. Or he said, this God that you think protects cattle, or this God that you think protects your crops, I'm going to send locusts and destroy all. I'm going to send a bug. I'm going to send something so small and so insignificant, and it's going to defeat this God that you think is so powerful. You worship that cow, I'll strike every cow in the land of Egypt dead. Watch me. And he did. And so not only did God bring them out of Egypt, he was showing them Egypt doesn't belong in you either. Just because you are, just because the, the, the status of my heart changes, just because the posture of my heart changes, doesn't mean the habits of my flesh are going to. God will give me a new heart, but I still have to overcome the habits of my flesh. And it can be a very long process. It took the Israelites 40 years to get to the promised land. Okay, so we're going to read. Uh, we're going to continue through where I started. First, we're going to be in Exodus 25. So if you'll turn to Exodus 25, we're going to be there very briefly, and then we're going to be in Exodus 30, Exodus 32 for a few minutes. 25 and 32. Okay. If you have it, say yeehaw. I'm sorry, I'm, I'm a Baptist from close enough to Nashville that you can hit a golf ball there, so sometimes it comes out of me. Okay, chapter 25, verse 1. The Lord said to Moses, 
Tell the people of Israel to bring me their sacred offerings. Accept the contributions from all whose hearts are moved to offer them. Here is a list of sacred offerings you may accept from them. Now the first one is gold. The first one is gold because that's what they're going to need the most of, and that's what is most valuable from this entire list. So we're going to skip the rest of the list, go down to verse 8. Have the people of Israel build me a holy sanctuary so I can live among them. Now, a tremendous difference from the people that we're reading about is uh, to us is that we are the holy sanctuary. We no longer need a tabernacle made of wood and gold for God to reside with us because he resides within us. And so moving forward, as we talk about the tabernacle or the holy dwelling, just know that's you. That's your body. You must build this tabernacle and its furnishings exactly according to the pattern I will show you. Now Moses is up on the mountain with God getting all this instruction about how to keep the people of Israel obedient and healthy and safe and in proper alignment with him and his will. This is happening on the top of the mountain. At the bottom of the mountain, at the very same time, is chapter 32. Chapter 32, verse 1. When the people saw how long it was taking Moses to come back down, they gathered around Aaron. Have y'all ever gotten impatient waiting for God? Have y'all ever thought, what's taking you so long, God? I've been praying about this for seven minutes. I prayed about this yesterday. But you know what? That just reminded me. One of, one of the, the great theologians of our era named Wesley Snipes. He said not long ago, he said, some of y'all pray for cake, and God gives you all the ingredients in a recipe, and you think he's not answering your prayer. It convicted me. <laughs> we often want God to just give us the exact thing that we're asking for. Give me peace, God, and he gives us a situation that we can be peaceful in. Or give me faith, God, and he gives us a situation that's going to require faith out of us. Or give me discipline and obedience, and he gives us a situation where we can exercise discipline and obedience. If he just gives us the thing that we ask for, he's a genie that we made in our own image. But if he's a God who puts us in a situation where we can grow into the answer to the prayer, then he's a father, right? Come on, the people said. Make us some gods who can lead us. That's Egypt in them. That's Egypt coming out of them right there. Let us make our own gods. Let us make Osiris. Let us worship the Nile. Let us worship the cows. Make us gods that can lead us. We don't know what happened to this fellow Moses. They knew. They know exactly where he is. He's up on the mountain. We don't know what happened to this fellow Moses who brought us here from the land of Egypt. So poor Aaron. He said, okay, take the gold rings from the ears of your wives and sons and daughters and bring them to me. All the people took the gold from their ears and brought them to Aaron. Then Aaron took the gold, he melted it down, and he molded it into the shape of a calf. When the people saw it, they exclaimed, O oh, Israel, these are the gods who brought you out of the land of Egypt. Aaron saw how excited the people were. So he built an altar in front of the calf. Then he announced, 
Tomorrow, tomorrow will be a festival to the Lord. Now that last verse that I read right there, that's where I, as a Christian, find myself so often flirting with idolatry. Because here's what I don't say. I don't say, God, I need you to get off the throne so I can put something else on it. It's not what I'm asking. But can you just scoot over just a little bit? Can you share the throne of my heart? Can you, can you let somebody else participate in the lordship of my life? I don't need you to leave. You can still be God. I just need you to have a partner. God is a jealous God. God's not going to share his throne with anybody. But the people of Israel thought, okay, we can worship God tomorrow, but today we've got this calf that we've made. Now, a few mistakes that they made that we so often make with idolatry is right in the instructions that God is giving Moses on top of the mountain for his tabernacle, he's including, because he's a wise God, he is including the ability for them to carry, to transport the tabernacle that they're building. Because guess what? Gold is really heavy, and wood is really heavy, and they're not at their final destination. God is sending them to the promised land. He has sent, the whole reason he brought them out of Egypt is because he's got a land full of promises that he is bringing them to. And he knows, okay, I'm requiring them to build this structure that's going to be heavy, so i got to give them a way to carry it. Guess what they did with the calf? They build the calf, and they have no way to move it. It's just a big, heavy statue. The moment you start surrendering to idolatry in your life, you stop moving toward the promises that God has for you. They were stuck. The very location that they melted the gold down and they constructed this idol, they're now stuck there. They're now stuck there. They're either going to have to say, we're abandoning that idol, we're going to leave it behind and we're going to move forward, or they're going to say, we want to worship this idol, so we have no choice to stay where, than to stay where we're at. The first sign that you can recognize idolatry in your life is when you stop moving towards the promises that you know God has made for you. And if you're honest with yourself, you'll see it. Because God's going to put some heavy stuff on you. When Jesus says, bring me your burdens, He doesn't say, I'm just going to take all burdens away. He says, I'll give you one that's lighter. I'll give you one that you can carry. I'm going to show you how to carry it, but it's still going to be a burden. But he's going to show you how to carry it. The tabernacle came with instructions and directions. There was four clasps on either side, and they had poles where they could run it straight across, and four men could just walk and carry it. They could walk just like they were carrying nothing because the weight was divided amongst them. That golden calf, it was stuck right where it was at. They weren't thinking ahead. And so they got themselves stuck. Now, at this point, we need to make a distinction. Because a few verses later, God tells Moses, he says, Quick, this is verse 7, Go down the mountain, your people who you brought from the land of Egypt. I think that's funny. That's like when I was growing up and I did something wrong, my mom would tell my dad, Your son, <laughs> your boy, right? God's saying, Your people... They have corrupted themselves. They have corrupted 
themselves. Now, last week, Shell, in a fantastic sermon that I'm still trying to process, she, she made the distinction between hurdles and weights. There are things <clears throat> that we're going <clears> to <throat> excuse me, encounter on this run that we're going to come up against. They're there no matter what. Those are the hurdles. And what God means for us to do is just overcome them. He's put them there for our growth and a strengthening of our faith. Now, what we often do is we pick things up along the way, or we'll come up to a hurdle and we'll pick it up and we'll carry it as a weight. God's saying, this golden calf is not something that I put there. They corrupted themselves. This is a mistake that they're making. This was unnecessary. They could have stayed quiet and obedient and patient at the bottom of the mountain, and they would have never had to deal with this. But they've corrupted themselves. So you have to ask yourself, when you come up against things in your life, is this something that God's put here with the intention to make me a stronger Christian and to pull me closer to Him? Or is this something that I'm corrupting myself with? We often face battles that we think are part of God's plan, and they're really just things that we are corrupting ourselves with. The longer we stay in it, the more corrupted we're going to be. The longer they stayed there at the foot of that mountain worshiping this golden calf, the harder it would have been to walk away. Now, why were they susceptible? Why were they in that moment thinking about building something that they could worship? Well, there are a few reasons. First of all, they grew impatient. They got tired of waiting for God. There had been 40 days between the time Moses went to the top of the mountain and when he came back down and he found what they were doing. That is a little bit of time to wait, but we have to remember they spent 400 years in bondage. 400 years versus 40 days, they probably could have stuck it out a little bit more. But we want to create idols in our life because we want gods that we can control. Up to that point, they had faced some real difficulties. They'd almost thirsted to death in the desert. They'd almost starved to death, even though they had cattle. We really never get an explanation about why they need manna from heaven when they've got cows in their pack, but that probably explains why they built a calf made of gold. They'd gone through hardships, and so they grew this bit of distrust towards God. They're thinking, if you're really a God who loves us and cares for us and who wants what's best for us and sending us to the promised land, then why are you making it so hard, right? So that's one reason. Another reason is trauma. They've experienced trauma. Back in Egypt, there was bondage. There are things that they're feeling in the desert that are reminding them of things they felt in Egypt, and they're thinking, if we're going to be going through this, we might as well be going through something that's familiar. Times in my life when I've turned back to idolatry, it's because knowing the bondage and the consequences and the discomfort of that was still more comfortable than fear of the future and the uncertainty. And if I don't have a full, just unyielding trust in God, things that I don't understand and that I can't see, they're going to scare me into going back to what I already know. One of my favorite authors, he says, you can have control or you can have growth, but you can't have both. You can have control or you can have growth but you can't have both. 
They knew this golden calf, this idol that we've built, I can put my hands on it. I can polish it. I can name it. I can talk myself into believing anything I want about it because guess what? It's just a statue. Baked right into the recipe of their worship was them knowing we have control over this thing. We built it so we can tear it down. Forcing themselves into a place of false worship was because they wanted a situation, a God that they can control. And the God of Israel, the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob had already made it very clear, you're not going to control me. He even said, I don't want anybody but Moses and Joshua to come up on the mountain. Everybody else stay down there because you're not ready to handle who I really am. They didn't want that. So I'm going to give you three ways to combat idolatry very quickly. Three ways I believe when you are at the point of accepting and believing that you may have some idolatry in your heart, I'm going to tell you how to fight it. Number one, rest. Number one, rest. The following chapters in the book of Exodus are all God either commanding or reminding that He's commanded a Sabbath. Chapter 16, chapter 20, chapter 23, and chapter 31. All of those chapters are focused solely on Him saying, one day a week, I need you to do nothing. Do nothing, one day a week. Other six days, do what you need to do. Garden, build, have family, work, travel, whatever. But that seventh day, I need you to stop. I need you to put everything aside, and I need you to focus on me and rest. The reason for this is because rest is something that we have to learn. It's not built in our DNA already. Sleep is, right? But sleep is not rest. Sleep can be laziness, and laziness is not rest. As a matter of fact, one of the very last commandments God get, Jesus gives His disciples is don't go to sleep. I need you to stay awake and I need you to pray because sleep can be the enemy of growth and sleep can be the enemy of rest, especially when we confuse the two. But if God can get us alone long enough, if He can get us in a place where we put down distractions, where we put down all the other... Look, this world is so full of so many opportunities that you can give your time, you can give your energy, you can give your money, you can give your focus. It's clawing at us at all times. But if we're spread that thin where everything is getting all of us, what does God get? Because look, if He can get us in a place where it's just us and Him long enough, He can combat, He can address all of the stuff that we're talking about. If we'll pray long enough, if we'll focus long enough, if we'll listen long enough, He will say, hey, that's a problem. Hey, that's an idol. Hey, you don't need to be worshiping that. You don't even know that you're worshiping that. And that's more dangerous than if you did know you were worshiping that. Rest, number one. Number two, giving. Number two, giving. I think it's very interesting that the passage where God is telling Moses to collect gold from the people, he makes it very clear. He says, accept it from those with a willing heart to give. Contrast that with Aaron, who says, go take. He tells the people, go take the gold from your wives and your sons and your daughters. 
Idolatry is going to take from you. God is going to receive from you. The part that we didn't get to is that even after, even after the people give their gold, the most valuable thing they own, after they give their gold to build this golden calf, God still requires the gold to build the tabernacle. He doesn't let them off the hook. Same goes for you in your life. If you go out here, whether it be money, which is a valuable resource, but I'm convinced is the easiest resource to obtain. I could turn my phone on right now and open up an app and start getting notifications just like this for all these deliveries available and all these people needing rides. Money's the easiest thing to get. You know the one thing you're not going to get once you give? Time. God wants your time. But either of those that you choose, okay, you give your resources to idolatry or you give your time to idolatry. God's not going to let you off the hook and say, I saw that you spent X amount at that place, so just don't worry about your tithe this week. Go ahead. Well, I'll give you a pass because I saw you spent that money that you really didn't. No, God still requires your tithes. You stayed up late on Friday night doing things you probably shouldn't have been doing. God's not going to say, you know what, go ahead and sleep in. You're good. I'm, I'm, I'm good on time with you today. Don't worry about doing your Devo. Don't worry about praying because I saw how much you gave to the other things, so I'm going to let you off the hook. They still had to give the gold to build the tabernacle even after they depleted their resources on the calf. You're going to save yourself a lot of time, energy, and money if you'll just give it to God in the first place. He'll let you keep what you need to keep if you don't give it where you don't need to give it. Giving. And I'm not talking about Pioneer Church. We're fine. If you want to give to Pioneer Church, God bless you. I'm just saying give it to God in one way or another. Finally, way to combat idolatry. Community. Community. And this is probably the most important. This room is full of, of people that very early in my recovery, in my, my new life with Christ, who said some very hard things to me, who pointed out blind spots in my life, who told me um, very specifically and very painfully that I use sarcasm way too much. Thank you, Alex. Um, and Jeff pointing out different aspects of my life that needed addressing, but the only way the only way that happened, the only way that was possible was me allowing and inviting godly people into my life who were wise enough and willing enough to do that. Contrast that with what, what just happened with Aaron. Because as Christians, every environment and situation we walk into, we're supposed to have an impact on I'm going to give a very practical explanation of this. Two things that everybody knows what they are. If I bring the thermometer into this room, that thermometer is going to react to the room. That, re that, that thermometer is going to change itself to mimic and reflect the environment that it's in. Now, if I bring a thermostat into this room, that thermostat is going to change the room. That thermostat does not care what the temperature in the room is. It's going to be what it is, and the room can change itself. As Christians, 
unless you're walking into a very meticulously designed environment like this, you're not supposed to react or reflect the world. If you find yourself walking into worldly situations and you start looking like the room you've walked into, you're making a mistake. We are supposed to walk into worldly situations and rooms full of this and change it. We're supposed to be the thermostat, not the thermometer. Aaron had the opportunity at the foot of that mountain when all these people came to him and said, hey, let's stay right here, but in here and in here, let's go back to Egypt. Let's make gods that we can make. Let's make gods that we can control. Let's make gods that we can put our hands on. He could have said, hey, y'all, no. He's brought us out of that. He's brought us out of that. Moses is up there taking care of business, learning how to lead us, getting words from God. Let's be patient and wait. But instead, he said, okay, bring me your gold. I'll do it. He reacted to the room. Now, <clears throat> Moses came down the mountain, and he fixed the situation. And here's how we're going to close. Moses came down, and he imparted some consequences on the children of Israel. If you aren't aware how the story ends, it is with him melting down the gold and making the children of Israel drink it. Melted down the calf, all the gold that they had given and sacrificed, he puts it back into liquid form and he forces them to drink it. And then he draws a big line in the sand. And he said, all right, I see what y'all just did. He even asked Aaron, he said, what happened? He said, I don't know, man. I took the gold, I threw it in the fire, and this cow came out. That's what he said. And Moses is like, really? Moses draws a big line in the sand, and he says, all the people who are willing to serve this God that brought us out of Egypt, come to me. They came to him, and he said, everybody who didn't, go kill them. And sure enough, every person that joined forces with Moses and said, okay, we're going to serve the God of Israel, they went and they slaughtered. Because you know what? They still had too much Egypt in them. They had too much Egypt in them for them to continue because if they'd have stayed, the very next stop, the very next time things got hard, the very next time they had to wait, there'd have been a new calf or there'd have been a frog or there'd have been a, a river Nile. Whatever it is, whatever the, the idol of the day turned out to be, they're throwing their gold in a fire and out it comes. They had to be done with them. So let's finish where we started because we are not in the same situation as the children of Israel. It is context for who we are today and it is an explanation for what we go through. The God of the Old Testament and the God of the New Testament is the same God. It's the same God. It's not a different God. But the difference is Jesus comes along and just like when you've got one of those really expensive cameras and you're looking through it at something and then you put a new lens on it and you see the thing differently, you see it clearer, you see a new perspective on it, Jesus gave us a new perspective on God because what he did is he put this lens of mercy and redemption and grace. And so, don't get me wrong, I've drank some gold in my life. I've experienced the consequences of idolatry in my life that tasted and felt like I was swallowing liquid gold. 
But God is not going to strike us dead after every time we fall victim to idolatry. He can't. We do it too often. We do. We do it too often. It's too slick in our lives. The things like the family, the things like the work, the things like the distractions, the phones, all these things that we get our worship, God has mercy and grace for that. You know how I know? The way this verse in 1 John starts. 1 John 5, 21. It starts with two of now the most beautiful words I've ever seen in the Bible. And I, I want to thank Anna for showing me this because she is very adamant always about digging as deep into Scripture as you can possibly go. And sometimes I'm like, okay, that's a little far. But then there are other times like this when she said, look up the Greek and see what it says. And she didn't know. But I looked up the Greek, and the words little children is a slang term for darlings. John's saying darlings. Don't let anything take God's place in your heart. So I started. It took me down this journey. And the only other place in all of the Bible that this slang word for darlings is found is in John chapter 13. And it's right after Jesus... He washes the feet of His disciples. He washes the feet of His disciples and He says, Darlings, I'm not going to be with you much longer. I'm about to have to go. I'm about to have to go to the cross. I'm about to have to die. Where I'm going, you can't go. And Peter says, No, nah, man. It doesn't matter where you go. I will go with you. And Jesus said, Son, you're going to deny me three times. Three times before you even know it. So when God is, is telling us, He's saying, he's, he's, what He's not saying is keep yourself away from idols. He's not this dictator God commanding from heaven in this loud, aggressive voice keeping us from having a good time. He's protecting us. He's saying, little children, I don't want you to have to go through what you're going to have to go through if you do what you're about to do. If you let something take my place in your heart, it's going to hurt. Because I made your heart to worship me. And if it does anything else, you're going to wish you hadn't done it. And I don't want you to go through that. And he says that in one of the most tender moments of his entire life. He just washed their feet. And he's trying to explain to them why he has to leave them. I can imagine some of you parents in the room, when you have to leave your kids for a brief amount of time, and they've got this fear of you not coming back, or them not having what they need, or you replacing them, or them missing out on you, or something. You're like, I'll be back. I just got to go do this. They don't understand the magnitude of what you're trying to do or what you're trying to explain. That's God's posture towards you in this. Everybody close your eyes. I believe that everybody in this room, for one reason or another, needed to hear what God just gave me to say. I believe that because I prayed for that. I believe that because I asked God to do two things. Send the people who are supposed to get, be there and give me what I'm supposed to say. And my God answers prayers. 
That means you're not here in vain. You're not here by accident, and you're not supposed to walk out this door the way you walked in it. So if you're here and you're a believer, if you're here and you've decided that God is your creator and Jesus is your savior, then that means you're here dealing with idolatry. And so we're going to pray a very brief, simple prayer that if all you do is say it and you don't put action behind it, then it's just words that you're saying. So I'm asking you to pray this prayer and then leave here with the willingness and the intention to do something different with your life. God, we surrender to you right now. We know that our salvation came at acceptance of you, but our deliverance comes at surrender to you. We've accepted you. We've accepted you as God, as Father, as Jesus, as Savior, but there are things that we need broken off of our life so that we can live nearer to you, so that we can live more aligned with your will, and so that we can live without the consequences of idolatry because it hurts and we're tired of it and we're sick of the chains and the bondage. So reveal to us what that is. We know you can't show us the whole thing at once, but show us today what needs to be changed today. And then empower us with the courage and the willingness to make the real life feet on the ground changes that we need to make so that we can give you all of our worship, all of our heart, so that we clear everything else off the throne that you are alone supposed to sit on. We believe you're going to answer this prayer. And God, for anybody in the room who is not a believer, who came here unsure about who you are and what you want from us, we do two, two very simple, very clear things. We believe and we receive. We believe that you are our Father. We believe that you sent your Son. We believe He took away our sins and we accept Him as Lord of our life. We don't know what that means yet. We don't know what that's going to look like. We don't know what it entails, but we do know that you're going to show us. And we do know that we don't have to walk it alone. We do know we're in a room full of people who will help us, who were put here for that very reason. We thank you. We love you. We're no good without you. In Jesus' name, amen. It's just like, yeah, preach it, but I hate that you're preaching it. <clears throat> My bad. Can we just give Cody a... Thank you for listening to the Pioneer Church Podcast. Let's go one step further. Subscribe and share this podcast with family and friends and see how this word changes their life. At Pioneer, we believe in journeying together. If you want to support this ministry, go to pioneerchurch.com give to continue to help us to reach people for Jesus. Thank you again for listening and God bless you.